I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is the word of the Lord. kids are uh, dismissed to their classroom. It's uh, my to uh, bring the word of God to you all this morning. Uh, Ronnie had a week off and I'm grateful for the chance to speak and hopefully encourage you guys with uh, the truth that we see in Philippians 2. Let's uh, pray. Heavenly Father, um, God, your word is is light, encouragement, and hope-giving, and it brings conviction of sin and shows us where we fall short. And so, God, as I pray, as we look at um, Epaphroditus and his example, I, I pray for all those things, Lord, where... Uh, we are in need of hope and encouragement. I pray that his story would encourage us, strengthen us. Lord, and where we have fallen short of the lives you desire us to live, and I pray that his example would again encourage us to walk holy before you. And I pray that Lord, the words I speak would be from you, and that we would see the truth of Philippians 2 in a, in a just fresh, powerful way. And so we ask these things in Jesus' name. So last week, uh, we took a look at uh, Timothy in verses 19 through 24, and this week we're going to look at another companion and partner in the gospel. And his name is less familiar to us. He's mentioned a couple times in uh, in our passage here and in later on in chapter four. But despite not having as much or background on him in comparison to Timothy, I trust that God's word will encourage, motivate, and challenge us this morning. So to provide a little bit of a roadmap of where we're going tell you kind of how we're going to approach this morning. First, we'll ask the question, who is Epaphroditus? And secondly, we'll ask, what does Epaphroditus do? And after asking those questions, who is he and what does he do? 
we're going to look at how we can apply that in our own lives. Who is Epaphroditus? Point number one. We see first in our passage that Epaphroditus was a Christian. Someone who not only believes in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, but who's placed his faith and trust in that work, in Jesus, who came down from heaven, gave himself as a sacrifice and taking on flesh, living a perfect life, so that those that have placed their trust in him might receive the forgiveness of sins as he takes their sins and gives them his perfectly spotless and blameless life. We see that Epaphroditus is a Christian in the noun that Paul uses to describe him immediately after introducing Epaphroditus's name. Epaphroditus is a brother. Of course, Paul is not referring to a literal brother in the flesh. He's a spiritual brother. When we receive Christ as Lord and Savior, we're adopted into the triune family, Father, Son, and Spirit, and all that believe in Jesus become siblings of one another sharing the same spiritual father. So Epaphroditus is a brother. Paul doesn't stop there. He lets us in on another aspect of who he is. Epaphroditus is a fellow worker. Once again, Paul does not mean to use this term in that they perform the same job or have the same occupation. Just as Paul's use of brother had spiritual significance, so too does fellow worker have a spiritual meaning. Paul means here that Epaphroditus is a fellow worker in gospel ministry. And we'll see in more detail precisely what work that was that Epaphroditus did. But it suffices to say now that Paul and Epaphroditus were working towards the common goal of gospel advancement. And then there's a third and final noun that Paul uses to describe who Epaphroditus is. And we'll camp out a little bit more on this one. Epaphroditus is a fellow soldier. Paul has no military background or experience, so for him to call Epaphroditus a fellow soldier means he's once again speaking in a spiritual manner. And this is high praise for Paul to call Epaphroditus a fellow soldier because Paul does not use this term lightly. Notice that the three nouns Paul uses to describe Epaphroditus demonstrate increasing levels of dedication and service. Epaphroditus is not only a brother, not only a fellow worker, but a soldier. Paul intends for these three nouns to function as a sort of crescendo, getting louder. Paul clearly views Epaphroditus in a very favorable manner. And further evidence of this is seen later in our passage where Paul encourages uh, the church of Philippi to receive him in the, Lord, in the Lord with all joy and to honor such men. He's held out as an example, just like Timothy was last week. So what does Paul mean by referring to him as a fellow soldier? Well, in Paul's second letter to Timothy, Paul shares a little bit of a parable uh, to Timothy, and he tells him in 2 Timothy 2.4, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Epaphroditus is a man that serves the Lord with singular focus. He does not have one foot in the kingdom of God and one foot in the kingdom of the world. 
Epaphroditus does not concern himself with trivial affairs, but has dedicated his life to serving Christ in the service of others. In addition to this single-minded focus on serving others for the Lord's sake, I believe Paul also wants to draw out another aspect of this soldier analogy that he uses. And once again, Paul uses soldier language in his second letter to Timothy. And it's just interesting by way of just comment. Uh, Timothy is told a couple times in his letter to be a soldier. Paul just states it as fact for Epaphroditus. 2 Timothy 2.3 Share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Another aspect of what it means to be a soldier is a willingness to suffer for a greater cause. And that's what we see in our passage. Epaphroditus makes a costly journey to visit Paul, and he knew full well the risks that come along with traveling in the ancient world. We see in our passage that this trip nearly cost him his life due to an illness that he presumably picked up while he was traveling. Epaphroditus' willingness to suffer and accept the cost of gospel service demonstrates why Paul can comfortably use the word fellow soldier to describe him. But there's more we learn about Epaphroditus and who he is. He is a member of the Philippian church. Paul says that he is your messenger and minister to my need. It was the Philippian church that sent one of its members to go and visit Paul while he was in prison. We see that Epaphroditus doesn't believe in a Christianity that exists outside of his local church, but is involved in and commissioned by his local church to go and do gospel work to benefit Paul. Lastly, there's one more aspect of who he is that may escape our notice if we quickly glance at the passage. We learn something that I think is important when we examine his name. His name literally means belonging to Aphrodite. And you don't need to know ancient Greek to see this. Just say his name slowly, Epaphroditus. His name clearly shows an association with the ancient Greek goddess Aphrodite. And this tells us something about his background. It tells us something of the values of the culture that he was raised in. Aphrodite was known as the goddess of love, beauty, and fertility. And these three characteristics were often commingled when people were worshiping her. They wanted all these things in the worship of Aphrodite. One reference I consulted about Aphrodite stated that she is always described as untouchably beautiful while seductive and lustful. Her beauty was often represented by her being portrayed in the nude. If you're a fan of art like I am, you think of the Venus de Milo statues, Venus, of course, being the Roman equivalent of Aphrodite. And since she's the goddess of fertility, part of what goes into worshiping her was the uh, pursuit of relations sexually with others, since she promised that she could deliver love, beauty, and fertility through that. And this was the culture that he grew up in, and indeed his name is even marked by it. 
His name also tells us that his parents who named him had no religious affiliation or influences from Judeo-Christian values. He grew up as a pagan with no knowledge and no background regarding the things of God. And when we look at the book of Philippians, it's interesting because it seems that Epaphroditus is not the only one in the Philippian church that has this kind of story. Indeed, there's actually strong evidence to believe that most, if not all, the church of Philippi had little to no knowledge of God's word prior to becoming Christians. Have you ever noticed that Paul never quotes the Old Testament in the book of Philippians? That's surprising when we consider how much we see Paul quote the Old Testament in his other letters. This fact alone would strongly point to the fact that the Philippian church did not have a strong background in the Old Testament. But it makes even more sense when we look at the account of the church at Philippi in the book of Acts. We see in Acts that it was Paul's habit to first go and visit the synagogue in whatever city he traveled to, since the Jews were familiar with the Old Testament and they were awaiting for a Messiah to come. But Paul gets to Philippi and there's no synagogue for him to visit. So instead he goes to the river, which was a place to pray. This demonstrates that there wasn't enough Jewish presence in Philippi to justify the existence of a synagogue. So it shouldn't be much of a surprise to us that Epaphroditus has the name that he has. And to be clear, Paul's lack of quoting the Old Testament in this letter most certainly does not mean that reading the Bible is not important. Nine verses earlier from our passage, Paul tells them to hold fast to the word of life. When we look at this, it does seem pretty clear that we can say that Epaphroditus seems to be somewhat of a prototypical member of the Philippian church. Former idolater whose life's turned upside down by the gospel of Christ. So who was he? Epaphroditus was a former idolater who became a committed, sacrificial follower of Jesus, who served him with single-minded focus and devotion and was willing to suffer for him. What does he do? Secondly, with regard to what Epaphroditus does, we see in our passage that Epaphroditus delivered a message from the Philippians to Paul. He was their messenger. We don't know exactly what that message involved, but when we look at our passage, we can see that Epaphroditus functions as a go-between for the communication between Paul and the Philippians. And in fact, he will also become Paul's messenger because he's going to be the one that brings this letter back to the Philippians when he comes back home. We see that this is not the only reason that Epaphroditus visits Paul. More importantly, he ministers to Paul's needs in verse 25. Paul was in prison in Rome at this point in his life, and the Philippian church sends a care package to Paul, since prisons didn't quite care for prisoners in the way that our current system does in today's day and age. And we get a little more of the glimpse of this care later in the book of Philippians. If you're in Philippians 2 in your Bible, you can turn the page, Philippians 4, 
verses 14 through 18, where we're going to read that little section there where it mentions Epaphroditus. This is Paul writing, Philippians 4, verse 14. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Once again, it seems that Epaphroditus is the prototypical member of the Philippian church. They send him along, but it's the church that was overly generous with Paul's needs. This wasn't an isolated instance of care. Paul shows that the Philippian church had repeatedly done this throughout his missionary journeys. And even goes so far as to say that the Philippians were the only church to do this. So not only is Epaphroditus himself sacrificial, but the Philippian church is as well. And Paul says that. We see something else that Epaphroditus does with respect to his trip to minister Paul to Paul. We see in our passage that Epaphroditus risked his life. Chapter 2, verse 30. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. And I've already mentioned this briefly, but travel in the ancient world was always a risky proposition. We see in Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan, there's a guy traveling from, I think, Jerusalem to Jericho, or vice versa. I can't remember. <laughs> but he falls into the hands of robbers, and they attack him. And it's not like they're police, you know, with vehicles five blocks down the road. It was risky to travel in the ancient world. There's also the risk of bad weather. We see Paul makes it to Rome by way of a huge storm that he nearly dies in. And then lastly, there's always the threat of illness. And if you've ever traveled cross-culturally, done mission trips, you know how easy it is to catch an illness when traveling. Be careful with the water and all that. Even in our own day and age, we know the risks of traveling. And this, of course, happens to Epaphroditus. His illness was so severe that it looked on all accounts that he wasn't going to make it. But our passage tells us that God had mercy on him, and not only him, but Paul also, by sparing him sorrow upon sorrow. All of these risks would have been known to Epaphroditus, and none of them deterred him from traveling to meet Paul's needs. One more thing that Epaphroditus does. He loves his local church. Verse 226, he's been longing for you all, and has been distressed because you'd heard that he was ill. Evidently, word gets back to Philippi that Epaphroditus was on the brink of death, and the Philippian church was understandably worried about what would become of this sickness. We see that their worry and concern for him affected him considerably. He didn't want them worrying, so he was distressed over their anxiety. And this produced a longing in him to return to them so that their hearts would be settled in seeing him fully recovered. What does Epaphroditus do? 
We may summarize it by saying Epaphroditus followed Jesus Christ through sacrificial, faith-filled service to others. So we've looked at what Epaphroditus, who he is and what he does, but what does this mean for us? What do we learn from the passage and how do we apply it in our lives? I've got four points of application. Number one, the offer of salvation in the gospel is for all people of all backgrounds. Maybe you're here this morning, or maybe you know someone like this, and you're like Epaphroditus. You've grown up in a secular home, no background in Christianity or the Bible, and maybe most of what I've talked about today is brand new. Maybe you felt like Christianity just isn't for you because you've not grown up with it and you wouldn't even begin to know where to start. Can I just encourage you this morning that that's where Epaphroditus and the Philippian church was at. I want you to know that Jesus is not looking for you to submit a resume to him. In fact, his earliest followers weren't professional theologians. The Bible says they were unschooled, ordinary men, the likes of fishermen, blue-collar workers, crooked tax collector. He definitely had the most ragtag group of men following him. Jesus isn't looking for a resume, but for anyone that comes to him acknowledging that he's all they need. Maybe you think you don't have strong enough faith to believe in Jesus. That's okay, because one of his earliest followers struggled with doubt, too. Jesus prizes childlike faith. Coming to a father that you just believe he will be there for you and will give you everything you need. And Jesus tells us he's looking for a mustard seed. The smallest of all seeds You can be saved with mustard seed type faith if you trust in him. It isn't your religious pedigree that matters. What matters is who you believe in. Christians do not believe in themselves to be saved. Christians believe in Jesus to save them. It isn't the size of our faith that saves, it's the object of our faith that saves. When Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And when John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He really means whoever. If you're not a Christian this morning, no matter where you're at, no matter your background, Jesus is bidding you this morning to come in faith to him. For those of us that have trusted in Jesus May we be encouraged to never write off anyone as a candidate for the gospel to do its work in. How easy it is for us to view people from non-Christian backgrounds as people that wouldn't receive the gospel. May God remind us this morning that the gospel is for the Jew first, but also the Greek. It's for the religious and the irreligious, the hypocrite and the pagan. Secondly, the gospel changes who we are. It's because of the gospel that Epaphroditus was transformed from being a worshiper of false gods to a worshiper of Christ. When we come to to Jesus Christ in faith and are saved from our sins, 
Our identity is irrevocably changed forever. Just go through some quick verses that are awesome. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is past, the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Colossians 3.3 For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I could see Epaphroditus saying that. The Bible is very clear to all who come to Je- that all who come to Jesus and are saved through their faith and trust in his death, burial, and re- resurrection are forever changed. And this is a change that goes far deeper than outward appearance. It goes all the way down to the core of who we are. Prior to receiving Christ, the Bible is very clear. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. Titus 3.3 says we were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Kind of sounds like Aphrodite. These are not flattering words, but they're true. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ dies for us. Jesus came to bear the consequences of our sin and to give us his perfectly spotless righteousness, so that going forward, our very identities are forever found in him. In Jesus Christ, no longer is it on us to define ourselves and work to become what we want to be. No, in Jesus, we've been made truly perfect. Our old selves are crucified with Christ. Our old, idol-worshiping, Aphrodite-loving selves died with Jesus on the cross. What we've done no longer defines who we are. This was Epaphroditus' story, and for those of us that have trusted Jesus, it's our story too. The gospel changes who we are. Point three, it also changes what we do. If we were to reflect even a little bit on our own culture and compare it to Epaphroditus' culture in Philippi, we would see that the world we live in really isn't all that different from the one Epaphroditus lived in. When reading up on the worship of Aphrodite in sermon prep, I came across what I thought was a pretty fascinating statement, mostly because this is a secular, non-Christian university academic website that I got this from. Listen to this quote. Speaking of like Aphrodite today, as we understand her. Today, she is an icon Her name evokes beauty and heightened sexuality. She is known by almost every individual as a sexual, beautiful deity. And while they are not worshipers or followers of the goddess, they all want her in their lives in some way or another. Whoever wrote these words, they recognize that what Aphrodite stood for is still very much a part of our culture today. And if we're honestly evaluating our own culture in today's day and age, can we really say that this worship of this false god is not practiced any longer? Indeed, it is still with us. Today, Aphrodite is the idol of casual hookups and Tinder. She's the idol of Hollywood nudity, HBO programming, and the strip clubs on US-19 and Del Mabry. 
She's the idol of sensual romance novels. She's the idol of the immaculate social media image, especially true of younger women that have to take so long to get the absolute best picture they can have. She's the idol of the Kardashian obsession with always looking as good as you possibly can. She's the idol of plastic surgery and Botox and getting implants. I think I'm dating myself here with a Jersey Shore reference. But she's also the idol of the gym tan laundry culture, for those that get the reference. She's the reason that so many people spend countless hours in front of a mirror. And why some people just have, are so dedicated to being in the gym all the time. She holds out a promise of satisfaction that pornographic images and videos on your browser will deliver the love, beauty, and intimacy that you're longing for. Indeed, this is still very much a part of the worship we see around us in St. Petersburg. This idol worship is still here. But the gospel can come in does come in and it changes not only who we are but what we do it empowers us to holy living Romans 6 4 we were therefore buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father we too might walk in newness of life brothers and sisters because Christ has come we have been united to Jesus through his death and now we can walk in newness of life before him. Now we look to Jesus and we read God's word and we cling to his promises and are empowered by his spirit. And when we do that, we can practice Colossians 3 5, which tells us to put to death what is earthly in us, including sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Though his name meant belonging to Aphrodite, we see something radically different about him. He belongs to Jesus, and he gives Jesus his all. Which leads me to my final point of application. The gospel empowers us to take sacrificial risks for the kingdom of God. Epaphroditus nearly lost his life for the sake of his ministry to the Apostle Paul. But that is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Jesus lost his life. We saw that earlier in Philippians 2. He took on flesh, he died, even death on a cross. So to follow him means we must be willing to lose our lives for the sake of his. This doesn't mean or imply that believers are reckless and that we must be in a constant state of danger to be obedient to God. It does mean, though, that we must be people that are not only willing to sacrifice whatever the cost, but that we actually do tangibly sacrifice as Christians. Jesus tells his followers that whoever would save his life would lose it, but he whoever loses his life for his sake will find it. And he makes it clear, whoever does, this is Luke 14, 27, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. 
There is no such thing as a disciple who does not make sacrifices for the sake of Jesus. Epaphroditus models what a willingness to suffer looks like in an effort to minister to the needs of others. So I want to ask us a few practical questions this morning. When was the last time you took a risk for Jesus? When was the last time you did something sacrificial for the kingdom of God? How have you demonstrated your faith in Jesus by doing something that required the exercise of that faith? Could it be said of you that you are a soldier of Jesus Christ? That you share in suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ? As we close this morning, we see in Epaphroditus the story of a former idolater who becomes this sacrificial, faith-filled follower of Jesus because of what Jesus accomplished. That was his story. And for those of us that have trusted in Jesus, it's our story as well. It's also the story of the Philippian church. May we continue to look to the one who gave it all, that we too might give him our all, no matter the cost. Let's pray. God, we are thankful. We rejoice that the gospel, the work of the gospel goes all the way down. It changes who we are, makes us into sacrificial people that love others, and it empowers us to be risky for you. God, if there's someone here this morning that has not received you, I pray that, God, these these truths of this passage would resonate in their heart. I pray that they would see that the offer of the gospel is truly for them. And so, God, I, I pray, Lord, we need help to be sacrificial followers of Jesus. We love our own comforts. And oftentimes we fall short of the obedience you long to see us walk in. And so we thank you for the model that we see in Epaphroditus' life, for the sacrifices that he made, even risking his own life, that he could help Paul in the advancement of the gospel. We thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen.